Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, the podcast where we discuss the intersection between the queer and the historical in media. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And today we're bringing you a recap of three different queer historical films that were released in 2018. So first off, Happy New Year to all our listeners. We love you very much. So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be discussing three films today. The films are Vita and Virginia, Colette, and Bohemian Rhapsody. There will be timestamps in the description, so if you are interested in only one or two of the films, you can skip to the part where we discuss those films. So we're going to start with Vita and Virginia. The worst of the three. (laughs) (laughs) Inarguably. Inarguably. The content warnings for this discussion are as follows. Mental illness, suicide, homophobia, and sex. Vita and Virginia was directed by Chanya Button, and it follows the love affair of Vita Sackville West, played by Gemma Arterton, and Virginia Woolf, played by Elizabeth Debicki. Against the backdrop of Virginia's mental illness, the women's relationships with her husbands, the Bloomsbury Group, and the writing of some of their most famous works, including Orlando. It's adapted from a play of the same name, written by Dame Eileen Atkins. I wonder if the play is any better. Not that much better. I mean... (laughs) Well, alright, we're getting ahead of ourselves. What did you guys think of this film? So, we saw this film all together. We did. um, Which is the only one of the three films for which that is the case. Yes. And uh, Eli and I stared at each other about ten minutes in. I reckon it may have even been (laughs) earlier. And we had a moment that we've only ever had with one film before. (laughs) That film being X-Men Apocalypse. Yeah. Where we both knew that we were in for a bad time. It's the look that says we have to sit here for the next two hours no matter what happens. (laughs) And then we did that. (laughs) This is a bad movie. It inarguably a bad film. The main thing I think to say up front Mm -hmm. is that this film is a bad film mostly because it has not a lot to say. It's just kind of boring. (laughs) It is quite boring. Even though it's covering some incredibly interesting topics and a wide range of issues, I don't think that this film had a lot to say about any of those issues. Yeah, Mm. I agree. So there are a a lot of small things that I thought were bad about this. Uh, I thought a lot of the dialogue was really, really overwrought. The whole, like, modern sort of, like, synthy soundtrack that they put over the whole thing, I think, didn't really do anything creative for me. It just kind of made it feel confusing in terms of time and place. But I think my major problem with it can maybe be traced back to the fact that it is based on a play based on letters. Yes, and I think very much the dialogue being overwrought and very much... Yeah, felt like they were reading out letters, which they were functionally. They did, yeah. Well, there's a whole bunch of shots where one of the women will literally, like, stand looking at, like, Vaseline-coated lens Mm. and just, like, recite one of the letters, Mm. which is a really lazy way to get letters onto the screen. But also, how do you get letters onto screen without, like, just disposing of the actual text of the letters? Another thing that got me about those scenes was if you are trying to get letters onto screen, mm. I w- would say, you know, for example, show them writing or reading the letter. They did. Which they did in, yeah, they did in some times, but a lot of the time it was just one of the women speaking mm. to the camera and there was no context. They, yeah. It was always the same shot. I don't know what the backdrop was, but it was always the same backdrop and they were always in the same costume. So it didn't feel like the letters were in the context of any part of their lives. And it also divorces it from the other woman. Yeah. 
you know, like you get one woman alone reading out this like beautiful love letter or whatever, but you don't see the other woman reacting to it. You know, you don't get a shot of her like where she is reading it and reacting to it or anything like that. And I think that's where it comes into the fact that it was really obviously adapted from a play. Like in this play, the actresses would have like stood on the stage and read out the letter. Mm. And you can kind of get away with that more in theatre than you can in a film. And that would have been kind of bad then. Maybe the other woman would have been on stage somewhere reacting to it. Maybe she wouldn't have. But then they were just like, we can just do that, right? And the answer is no, theatre in Virginia. You can't. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and I think that that sort of leads into one of my criticisms from a filmmaking perspective, which is that the characters acted in ways that didn't seem to match their dialogue or their body language or the situation of the film or like proceed in any kind of logical manner from scene to scene. And yeah, part of that was just the very clunky dialogue. Even the bits that were not literally a letter being read out very much felt like they were yes them reading letters at mm. each other across a room i am writing dialogue for old-fashioned people in the old times <laughs> and yet the soundtrack which you've already mentioned mm. is very modern yeah there were just a lot of incoherent creative decisions being made mm-hmm. all the reviews i read of this film that talked about the soundtrack and a lot of them did talk negatively about the soundtrack and be like what was that why did they choose that said that it was chosen or probably chosen or assumed it was chosen because they were trying to kind of connect with a modern audience and make it feel like these women could have been alive and had relationships like this and so on in the modern day. But And I think the way that you do that is by showing them as very like human women who have experiences that are very easily mm. identifiable to you as a modern day person, which shouldn't be hard given the, like, massive character of these two women. But no. Yeah. No. Just not. <laughs> I really didn't like this movie. Yeah. <laughs> this movie just wasn't very good. And their relationship, I didn't feel very convinced by their relationship at all either. No, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, like, so I, I felt that Virginia seemed largely cold and disinterested mm-hmm. throughout the film, which mm. kind of belied her actions in the film like the actions the the literal ways in which the plot contrives her to react to vita Mm. didn't seem to really match up with how they presented her character and then also just the fact that she then proceeds to you know write orlando about this person that for large swathes of the film she doesn't seem particularly interested in even Mm. after they are in a relationship Mm. would you like to hear a reasonably savage quote from a review about this general topic. (laughs) Sure. All long straight lines and sharp angles, Debicki's Virginia moves with the alien jerkiness of a long-legged wading bird picking its way across a swamp. For all the unblinking stares which pass between the women, whose eyes lock almost from the moment they meet, there is little to suggest much of a connection between the two. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think that Elizabeth Debicki did the initial part of their meeting reasonably well. Like, I I got the impression of someone who is sort of like, what? Someone is interested in me. This is fake. I don't really get it. Which seemed to be what the film was going for. Mm. But then they never really progressed beyond that. Mm, but at the same time, they were reading these effusive love letters. Obviously, from the text of those letters, they are very passionate about each other and they you know are really interested in each other's lives and they're really interested in the other person 
but and it just did not come across in the film at all. Mm. I read one review, which I don't agree with at all. Okay. Written, <laughs> <laughs> written by a queer woman, and she said, you know, a straight man watching this movie might think they were very distant. Oh, I read this review. Yeah, and then Continue. she basically said, but a queer audience would not feel that because they're more used to having to have their relationships through coded glances and so on. Okay, I have a very... (laughs) I have a specific response to this because... And this is kind of moving on to sort of what the film says about queer issues, which is to say not a lot, because the thing is that for for large portions of this film, they're not really interacting in spaces where they have to be coded about their reactions. Mm, like, the, the social group is a pretty queer group. Yeah, and it's, you know, pretty... It, it's not even, like, hidden, really, from the group, even from their first meeting, that what Vita is trying to do. Mm, yeah. Um, so... I mean, I guess you could make the argument that, like, if you're living in the society where you have to be, very, like, careful and minute in how you express your queerness, the moment you walk into a room full of queer people, you don't get to it like you don't just sort of that doesn't all just fall away and you forget that that exists like you're still being shaped by that society but also that's not what the film's trying to do yeah and this is not the message the film is trying to convey and if it is then it failed to convey that that was what it was trying to convey i guess (laughs) yeah and that was sort of the the other half of that right is that we don't necessarily see them outside of those circles to have that point of comparison to say oh yeah they're you know reasonably uncomfortable Mm. um with their queer identities and with their queer expression outside of that context you know we sort of i guess we get one scene with vita and her mother Mm. there's also vita's husband sort of saying like be careful you know so many cakes, Vita. Mm. You know, he has this line where it's like, you always wanted to have your cake and eat it too, and there's just so many cakes, which I thought was really great. But he's sort of saying, like, you know, I'm a diplomat or ambassador or whatever he was. I'm very public. You know, you need to tone it the hell down, even mm. though I don't care. And we get literally, like, one shot that reveals that her husband is also queer because he, like, gets out of bed in the morning and then it's revealed that there's a naked man next to him. Um, so, like, there is that, but, like, I've literally recounted that entire subplot to you. <laughs> so yeah. it's not very well developed. Yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic, I quite liked the characters of their husbands. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think from what I, I... So, full disclosure right now before we get to it, but I haven't seen Colette. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think that I imagine, based on my reading of the plot summary on Wikipedia, there's going to be some interesting points of comparison to be made later on between the husband's um, support of their wives in this film yeah. compared to what yeah. happens in Colette. It is really hard to see films in Australia, okay? Like, it is so difficult, <laughs> especially in a way that is, like, at all timely with the rest of the world. It's very true. It's very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear that Jason hasn't not seen this film out of laziness, but because they could not get to a screening. <laughs> yeah. There was one. <laughs> yeah, there was precisely one screening. Yeah. Um... But yeah, I thought that we, like, to sort of get back to what I was referencing before, I didn't really get a sense of the historical context that we were in. And I think, Mm. you know, some of the reviews uh, that I read talked about how 
it didn't really feel like the 20s. I mean, it spans about 10 years, I think, so yeah. 20s, 30s, yeah. Um, oh, maybe, I can't remember. Anyway. The inter- I mean, the fact years. that you don't know, though, <laughs> yeah. is indicative of... Well, they wore the same clothes for the entire 10 years. They had, like, three outfits each. I mean, but also, it, yeah, it, like, the, especially the Bloomsbury group scenes felt very unmoored from time. In mm, the, yeah. You could have told me, you know, me not personally having a lot of historical knowledge of these people... Um, aside from what I've heard from our podcast, <laughs> um, you could have told me that those scenes were set in the 60s or 70s, and I probably would have believed you. Right. Especially, I think, like, Vanessa and Duncan's outfits at all times. I was just like, when is this? I think yeah. especially, like, in that party scene where we see Peter and Virginia first meet and you have that, mm. like, trancing modern music over the top. And then a lot of the costumes are quite modern. I felt like we were in a like student party in the 70s all of a sudden mm. and i was like oh god this is really whiplashy i mean i feel like there are student parties in melbourne now that look like that <laughs> yeah <frankly. laughs> yeah so yeah i i felt that you know yeah if you are going to try and portray this kind of like sort of on and off courtship and you know trying to deal with how people are being queer in that time and within the confines of the society that they're in i think that again the text tells us that they are struggling against those confines and you know you've already described the scene with um vita's husband and i've made reference to the scenes with vita's mother Mm. where there's kind of a threat of taking away her children and taking away the sort of stipend that they get Mm. um, that the couple gets but I didn't feel it in the sort of framing of the film. There wasn't really any malice or threat really in those scenes. And there wasn't really a sense that society was encroaching upon them or that there was any real consequences for what they're doing. And that's okay. Some media is allowed to depict queer people just being happy. Yes. And that's fine. But I didn't really feel like we got that either. No. Mm. And I guess that brings us around to the like major antagonist of this film which is that virginia's crazy guy she's so crazy she has hallucinations of crows and stuff isn't she crazy yeah yeah (laughs) crows and vines so i guess we'll like actually be clear about what we're talking about here before we get into a long unstructured rant about how it sucks Mm. um (laughs) so virginia wolf struggled a lot with mental health issues and they were better at sometimes and worse at sometimes and the interesting thing about her relationship with vita is that despite vita being like a very strong impulsive personality Virginia's husband and their circle in general felt that, like, Vita was quite a good stabilizing influence on Virginia. Um, And a lot of this film is devoted, I guess, to, like, that, to Virginia's um, deteriorating mental health and, like, Vita's benefit or not to that situation. And like so many things, the way that they show the mental illness is just so lazy it's so lazy. Yeah. And also bad. In that basically we just kind of like see what Virginia sees and it's just like hallucinations of like a big flock of crows or it's hallucinations of like vines growing all through the inside of a house. And like, I hated it. Yeah, I would say it alternates between lazy and incoherent where yeah. the the crows 
which attack Virginia when she has some form of panic attack or mental health breakdown. Yes. A flock of crows literally attack her. And then the other scenes with the vines, it's less clear exactly what we're supposed to be perceiving her. I actually read one review which implied that the scenes with the vines were less about the mental health deterioration and more like an expression of her creativity. Well, then that's just incoherent and i think that that reviewer i don't think they're correct as to the director's intentions but i think it's illustrative of Mm. the way in which it wasn't really clear in those scenes what was happening in virginia's head and so the fact that you're using a lazy visual metaphor to depict mental illness and then you don't even do that in a way that's clear to the audience kind of indicates that you've uh, screwed up a little bit. I also think, like you mentioned, Vita being like a good influence in Virginia's life in that regard, that was handled very lazily and heavy-handedly as well. Like, there is a point where Virginia has a breakdown after that, and Vita's overseas at the time and returns and takes Virginia to stay with her for a while to kind of, you know, recover. And basically all you see is they arrive at Vita's house and then they have sex, as far as I recall it. And rather than coming across as Vita being a positive influence who's helping Virginia through her mental illness, it just looks like she slept with her and then she was fine. And, yeah, I think that that's, again, illustrative of the movie's propensity to tell and not show. Mm. In that we are told by several characters that Vita is a good influence on Virginia's mental health, but... Aside from the fact that she seems mildly happier sometimes than others, we're not really shown that, I think, in terms of the way that that actually impacts on her day-to-day life. Mm. I think it also just kind of comes dangerously close to being like, oh, like, Virginia's really, like, uncomfortable with sexual things, and, and then, like, oh, Vita's a good influence, she comes along, and now Virginia can have sex, and it's this kind of thing of, like, it doesn't really explore... Virginia's relationship to sex enough for that not to just seem like, oh, you're fixed now because you want to have sex. Yeah, 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 that was exactly how that felt, yeah. Maybe her discomfort with sexual contact with other people isn't just because she's disinterested in that. Maybe it's because she's uncomfortable with, you know, some aspect of human interaction or something, I don't know. I'm trying to do work the movie never did. Maybe <laughs> it's something that she would actually like to become comfortable with. But we don't... They didn't give me this. Yeah, we don't know. We're speculating at yeah. this point. Is that thing, right, where, like, you know you've got bad writing where you have to write, your, like, your own scenes in between the scenes? And, you know, I think that it's okay for movies to leave space to speculate between the gaps, but that's all this movie did. You can't just do that. Anyway, this wasn't a very good movie. So do we have anything positive to say about this film before we finish up this discussion? I'm racking my brain and I cannot think of anything. Like you said, you liked their husbands. I, I do. I, liked I like specifically that they didn't play down how genuine their relationships with their husband was in order to have them be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. I thought that was quite good. This movie's not very good. <laughs> no, this yep. movie's not very good. <laughs> Some of Vita's outfits were quite good. Yeah. And there were a couple of shots where basically a few of the shots where no one was talking because they were like traveling in a car or a train or something like that. Yeah. Looks like they came out of a much better film. (laughs) (laughs) I will also say, I don't know that this is really something that I can praise this movie for, but I am very grateful that we didn't have to get up to Virginia's side. For now, shall we talk about Colette? A movie which you have not seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I know the plot, guys. Yeah. 
The content warnings for this section are as follows. Abusive relationships, fetishization of minors, transphobia, and sex. Colette tells the story of the famous French 19th to 20th century writer Colette, most famous for her Claudine books. She writes them at the behest of her husband, Willie, who made his own name as a famous writer by publishing novels written by a stable of ghostwriters under his own name. In terms of the queer content in the film, Colette is very bisexual and she and her husband both have an affair with the same rich, bored American woman. Before later in life, Colette gets into a long-term relationship with a character who is called Missy in the film, who is a transgender man. The film stars Kira Knightley as Colette and Dominic West as Willie and it is directed by Wash Westmoreland. So, friends, what did you two think of this film? This film is better than Vita and Virginia. I quite enjoyed seeing it and I will never see it again. I agree. I enjoyed it. It was a good movie. I yeah, don't feel the need to see it again. Yeah, I think where it succeeded where Vita and Virginia really fell down. And I can't help comparing the two movies because I saw them so close together and they're set in very similar eras. Um, is that the characters in Colette actually felt like real people doing things that real people would do. Yeah, Colette and Willie both have really rich, meaty characters. And mm. It's interesting to watch them interact. Um, this movie actually avoided falling into a few pitfalls that I assumed it would fall into. I guess we might as well talk about the relationship between Colette mm-hmm. and her husband first off. I really enjoyed the way it depicted the relationship between Colette and Willie because, like, I don't know much about Colette, but I know that she had a husband who, on the one hand you know, supported her in having relationships with women and in her writing career, but on the other hand was a pretty awful man. And I was curious to see how they would portray that relationship in a way where both of those aspects of it felt real and like they could coexist in the one person. And I think they did that well of making it feel real that Colette was attracted to Willie, but at the same time that there are a lot of negative aspects of their relationship and she ultimately leaves that relationship. Yeah, I did read several reviews of this film which largely seem to praise uh, Dominic West's performance quite a bit and Mm. specifically praise that aspect of it where he comes across as simultaneously charismatic and having some good aspects, but also having a lot of negative characteristics that ultimately hold Colette back in the long term. Mm. Yeah. I did read one review that said they didn't feel that Willie was villainized enough and they felt that he was treated too sympathetically, but I do think they balanced it pretty well. I think it's balanced, but I do think that, like, so much time is spent on this character in a film mm. where, like, you could have explored other characters more fully. Yeah, that and was... so it's not really time wasted, but it is kind of like, you know, the character that you spend a lot of your time on, if not most of your time on, is the abusive husband. Yeah, that was my major takeaway from the film, other than, like, I enjoyed it. Mm. I was like, other than my general positive, yeah, that was a good movie, was that it was a movie about Colette and Willie's relationship. That was the main thing that the movie was about, I feel, and that was a bit disappointing to me in going to watch a queer film, that the main relationship that it was about was her relationship with her abusive husband. Can I ask in relation to that, because having read a few reviews, one scene that comes up pretty consistently is where he locks her in a room to force her to write. Yeah. 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 So she refuses to write the second Claudine book. Like She's just like, oh, I'm not inspired or whatever. And he drags her upstairs and he locks her in a room and says, "Like, let me know when you've got this long or whatever. And she does write. For context, the Claudine books at this point were published under his name. Also, for further context, I guess, this happened in real life to the real Colette. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the reviews were very split on the presentation of that scene as to... And I think, you know, getting into that idea of whether or not uh, Willie's character was demonised enough mm-hmm. um, as to how villainised he was in that scene and that and how that scene was presented. So I was just interested to see what you two thought about that. I think in the moment that it happens, like, she's very angry and upset in the moment that it happens, but it's not presented as, like, a particularly awful action. But then later in the film, she references back to it and says, you know, that it was very bad and that she wouldn't stand for it now. And I think that that actually does display her character development pretty well and that at the time... Like, she doesn't like it, but she doesn't realise that how much she can stand up to it. I don't, you don't agree? I agree with that. Like, it spends a long time of her being, like, like hysterically upset and beating on the door and so forth. Mm. And, I mean, yeah, like, I, mean, the- I, I don't really see how that's her not seeing that it's a bad thing. Like, it's not like it shows her coming out and then being like, oh, I'm over it now, here's your pages or anything. Like, we don't really see her come mm, down. Yeah, that. I guess that's true. I guess oh. I guess I was more thinking it's mu- it's only much later in the film that we see her really stand up to Willie. Sure, but I don't think, like, a woman in an abusive relationship not standing up for herself means that it's portrayed as fine that mm. he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, th- I think the reviews I read were basically saying that because of the success of the Claudine books that follows on from that scene. Mm -hmm. So I was actually really worried at that point that the film was going to kind of deliberately or more likely implicitly imply that, like, the Claudine books were ultimately brought about because Willie did all of this stuff and so it had been productive in the end. But I think the film actually later on, the whole point of it becomes undermining it and her taking ownership over the books. Mm -hmm. There's this whole tagline that gets repeated of people saying, I'm the real Claudine. It gets introduced when they're making a play of it and this woman marches in and kind of says, like, I'm going to be your lead actress. I'm the real Claudine kind of deal. And then later on she says, like, like she specifically rebuts the idea that he's responsible for them existing. Mm. She kind of says, like, this came from me, my talent. I'm the real Claudine. And yeah. I was like, okay, movie, okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think that is one of the major themes of the movie is her taking ownership of her work, yeah. Mm. Yeah, cool. No, I was, I was just intrigued to hear yeah. how that played out. I do kind of want to briefly touch on the whole schoolgirl fetish that's just kind of underlying in this movie. Yeah. Just going on All that. right. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing that made me very uncomfortable in the scene where he locks her in the room is kind of drags her upstairs and is kind of saying like, oh, when you were a schoolgirl and you did something wrong, what would your headmaster do? Would he make you write lines? Would he put you over his knee? And she says yes and he goes well and then he locks her in the room and i was so sure that he was about to just like spank her and i was like no 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 and then it kind of almost like puts you in a position of being relieved that she's just being locked in the room which i think you know is a fine criticism of that scene Mm -hmm. it doesn't treat it as fine but it it does make you relieved that that's not happening and then that you know kind of goes away and then there's girls wearing this like sort of schoolgirl outfit because claudine becomes really popular and claudine is a schoolgirl for reference like it's about colette's school days fictionalized through claudine yeah sure um 
and like there's a scene where Willie kind of like gives her this like popularized dress that's based on a schoolgirl dress to wear like implicitly for them to go to bed and like this doesn't I don't think that this is really they don't really have like a message about this in the movie or anything like that but like oh god it was uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> yeah 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 and because he also has a relationship oh with yeah a younger girl a lot about that yeah but yeah like this girl comes to their house I guess to kind of get him to sign the book and she's wearing that sort of like schoolgirl look and she hits on him on Willie and he's like how old are you and she's like 23 but like I know I look younger or something mm. and it's like okay and, and she does she looks real young yeah well I mean like when Colette initially gets with him like he's significantly older yeah, than he yeah. Is. Yeah. yeah yeah and she's 20 I believe I, I think remember. she's supposed to be 19 at the very start of the film from memory mm. yeah. she is portrayed in that relationship where she does marry him quite early in the film and she is quite young she's portrayed as having agency in that relationship from the beginning I don't know if that's quite true I think okay. at the beginning and then not anymore so Willie comes to visit Colette and her family on the countryside because he's courting Colette basically every time I say Colette I'm like shit it's Gazette <laughs> <laughs> and so like they have this like nice kind of like proper tea and then he leaves and she's like to her parents like oh I'm gonna like go off for a walk now and then they kind of like meet off in some secret place and they kind of like make out or whatever so it's like she's like not just kind of passively being courted she's like going out and meeting him and so forth and she actively wants this but then once mm. they get to Paris she's just this naive young country girl and she really can't keep up with his social circle at all or with him and she doesn't have any real power to a, do anything a younger per- person pursuing an older person and then it <laughs> maybe being a little bit problematic in terms of power dynamics where have we heard that before <laughs> never ever if you'd like to listen to our episode and call me by your name you can find out on our Podbean or iTunes <laughs> I don't know like as I said that's not really a theme yeah I don't know I guess what are your thoughts Alice do you think that that's just like a fine underlying observation of weird power dynamics and the fetishization of young women by older men or do you think that that's like a weird thing that should have been dealt with more or not i mean i guess the reason it's there is because of the popularity of claudine as a schoolgirl and the fact that it did create this kind of fashion among young women of you know dressing in like the schoolgirl dress and so forth that you mentioned but you're right i don't think the film does anything with it i guess it further demonizes Willie. Mm, and I guess it potentially or does it? His relationship with that like quite young girl I mean she's 23 and like the movie makes her say her age because otherwise everyone would have been like whoa 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 but with this you know quite young looking woman who he's attracted to at least in part because she looks young mm-hmm. like mm. it's it's weird but like Colette's just kind of like oh huh, huh, Willie. Yeah, yeah yeah. I mean maybe it's just in there because they felt like with the fashion of Claudine and everyone being so caught up in a book which is about the sex life of a schoolgirl, they had to kind of make some comment about the power dynamics that are implied within that. But I guess the other thing it does, returning to Willie's young girlfriend again, is it makes it clear how much Colette has changed. Because she yeah. was that girl mm, at the start mm. of the movie, and she isn't by this point. Yeah. I was about to say that that thematic through line seemed apparent just from yes. how you were describing that 
um, scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that aspect of the film. Yeah. Which, like, fine, I guess, but it does come at the expense of all its schoolgirl imagery. <laughs> yeah. 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 There are sort of two, I guess, kind of like clear scenes or progressions of scenes in the latter case where it's clear that Colette is into women, where in one she's at a party and there's a man and his wife or just a man and a woman there and Colette is having a grand old time talking to them and Willie walks up and thinks she's flirting with the man and is like, we're leaving right now, we're going home. And in the carriage on the way home... She's like, what if I told you it was the woman I was interested in, not the man? And he's like, well, that's a different matter. I'm quite intrigued by this, actually, kind of deal. Mm. Which I, you know, like, I feel is what Willie would be like. Mm, mm. I think it is addressed at a later point where she's like, why is it different? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, so, so him fetishizing her bisexuality is something that the film is aware of. Is aware of. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's nice. It is yeah. nice. And then there's a series of scenes where she starts having an affair with this American woman and like they meet and they flirt and you'll maybe have seen screen caps or gifs going around of her being like, when you look at me like that, it's like you're taking off all of my clothes. That line. Yeah, I have seen this. There's a bunch <laughs> of Tumblr. <laughs> yeah. Well not anymore, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, the female presenting nipples. <laughs> <laughs> and there's basically like a montage of sex scenes where she's having sex with this woman and then Willie starts having sex with this woman and then like they stop having sex with the woman. <laughs> <laughs> that was not where I was expecting that sentence to go, but like, cool. <laughs> yeah. So like very much clearly bisexual, not like alluded to like Colette is bisexual in this movie, which, you know, I was like, maybe that won't happen. Movies are bad. Um, <laughs> so that was good, but also I guess you could make the argument that it, it's not a huge part of the movie and it does kind of ultimately feed back into, like, her relationship with Willie. But then to counter that again, uh, we haven't done an episode on Colette. I don't know a lot about Colette. I don't know what female lovers she had that they could have built an arc on. Yeah, I think... Maybe 50, maybe none. I think later in life, so near the end of the film, she leaves Willie. Yes. And I think later in life, she did have more female lovers. Oh, okay. But the film ends before that happens. We're evoking Bohemian Rhapsody again. (laughs) (laughs) But she had a relationship with Josephine Baker. Okay. (laughs) Why would you not... Hang on, hang on. Are you sure... That that's true. <laughs> Sauce, Alice. <laughs> Josephine Baker. Okay. Josephine Baker talks about them, like, meeting, and I can't remember exactly what she said. I don't think she was like, we had sex, but she was like, we used to meet, and basically she said they dated. Right. She had a relationship with Josephine Baker. Oh, what? We got it. What? <laughs> <laughs> Why is Josephine Baker and Frida and not in this movie? Because <laughs> this was later. Right, yeah, well, this movie ends. I mean, they yeah. decide when the movie ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the reason the movie ends when it does is because the movie is about Colette and Willie. Yeah, okay, that's true. Yeah, and like it ends with the arc of Colette leaving Willie and going off on her own and with Missy to yes. be in the theatre. Also, because it's largely about the Claudine books, yeah, and the movie ends, mm. I believe, with her getting the rights back to those Yeah, books. yeah. And I guess that's also, yeah, tied up with. Willie and with her freeing herself from Willie because he has the rights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's about both those things, but. Yeah. Yeah. So we've mentioned Missy. Yes. Let's discuss this for an hour and a half. <laughs> what are your thoughts? So I didn't know that there was trans content in this movie before I went to see it. 
Did you guys know this? Was this something no, that was I mean, like advertised? I knew nothing about this before I went to see no. it. That's true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because like, I didn't go to see it. I've heard of Missy before because I looked up Colette a bit when I was researching Josephine Baker to be like, who is this woman that Josephine Baker had a relationship with? And even from like a like briefly reading about Colette and her relationship with Missy, I didn't come across mentions that Missy was trans. Mm. Yeah, so Missy's trans. Missy's trans. Yeah. Like, we're just going to say that. Uh, and even in this movie, presented as a trans man. Yeah, like, there is a scene in which Colette is speaking about Missy and Colette is using male pronouns and Willie is using female pronouns and Colette's like, no, he. Mm. Like, okay, yeah. that's I, that's pretty <laughs> authoritative. Yeah, it's pretty clear. And it's- also there's, a, like, a few times where Missy talks about his like life experiences in a way that is them trying to basically be like I am trans but in like early <laughs> oldy timey language yeah. <laughs> speak yeah or it talks about him like oh and then I put on my brother's school uniform and everything fell into place and it just felt right and I went off and I lived my life this way and it was like yeah alright that's like old timey for trans I guess yeah yeah okay yeah. Yeah. Okay. so this is a trans character they are understanding this person as a transgender man Guess who plays him? Is it a cis woman? It's Scarlett Johansson. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I was almost like, no, she wasn't in the cast list. And then I realized you were joking. So her name is Denise Goff. She is a cis woman. We don't really need to talk about why that's inappropriate because trans people have made it very clear all of our thoughts on this and cis people just don't care anyway. Yeah, I feel like most of our listeners are aware enough of yeah. the arguments surrounding that. Yeah. But an interesting thing about this is that there are trans actors in this movie. Before we move on to the trans actors who are in this movie, I just wanted to read a quote that Denise Goff had to say about playing this character. Oh, goody. Yeah. So she said that she's not going to apologize for this and then said, quote, I was reassured that the casting process had been very, very open, and I was also reassured by the fact that for the first time in history, Wash has cast two trans actors in cis roles, and I did an incredible amount of research. I think it's very important for me not to apologise for my work. I won't disavow myself like that. But if it means that people want to use it as a catalyst for further conversation, then fantastic. I'm always happy to be a part of that. That was a weird, like... I did nothing wrong, but at the same time, I want people to kind of, like, trying to think how to say this. Being very graciously like, oh, go on and drag me. That's like, all right. Yeah, yeah. She's like, yeah, I'm glad to be part of a conversation. It's like, no, they're saying that you were in the wrong. Like, Yeah, yes. And I also think that I just wanted to kind of set the scene of the actress specifically using part of the reason why this is okay as two trans actors were here playing cis people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's talk about those two trans actors. So we mentioned earlier that there's a scene where Colette is talking to a man and a woman and Willie is like, please come away from this situation now. You're flirting with this man. Mm-hmm. That is the only scene those two characters are in. And those are the two? Yes. Wow. And those characters are played by a trans man and a trans woman. I guess they get lines. I don't remember them, really. They do get lines, but... They're fairly inconsequential. They do have names. I didn't bother, like, finding them out for this because that would imply that they're characters and they're not characters. I think it is, like, kind of cool, but it's more like, fun fact. 
mm, this mm. kind of cool thing happened as opposed to something that you get to be really proud about. I was reading an interview with the director about it and he was saying like, yeah, I cast trans actors in cis roles and basically saying, you know, having spoken to trans actors and known that, you know, this is a thing trans actors want to happen, I thought, why not in this film? And it was very weird to read that when it was like, but trans actors playing trans roles is also a thing trans actors want to happen. You had a trans character and that just kind of wasn't acknowledged at all in that conversation. Yeah, and when you sort of read between the lines of like 10 interviews with people from this, it becomes clear that he knew these actors because he auditioned them for the trans character and then decided not to put them in that role. Okay. That was kind of, I was curious as to whether or not you knew whether that was part of the process because I kind of suspected it might Mm. be. And it's also just, I mean, sure, that is a good sentiment, the sentiment of Mm. wanting to cast um, trans actors in cis roles. But... The fact is that Missy, from all accounts, seems to be probably the third largest character in the film. Yeah, yeah but yeah. like lagging well behind others. Obviously, but, yes. Yes. obviously, yes. But <laughs> certainly a major role mm-hmm. in yeah. the film, as compared to a scene. As compared to two characters who show up for one scene. Yeah. And the fact, that especially that those are the two trans actors. Like maybe you know at least have them be in two different scenes. <laughs> so I didn't actually find it being said definitively anywhere that the trans man who is called Jake Graff uh, had read for that part but like it was said that like oh Wash looked for a bunch of different transgender actors because there was a transgender part so like it seems like he would have read for that role and then they decided to give it to this this woman interestingly the trans woman also read for the part of this trans male character I was gonna ask about that when you said they both read for the role Mm. I was like okay yeah so I'll read you the quote from the actress her name's Rebecca Root she said it'd be interesting if you had a trans woman playing a trans man it's sort of going backwards or playing against my type but why not if you have a cis person playing trans and a trans person playing cis why can't you have a trans woman (laughs) playing a trans man and like, sure, I guess. I mean, like, yeah, if a cis woman playing a trans man is what we deal with at the moment, then we may as well deal with a trans woman playing a trans man. I, but I why would not also, have a trans man play yeah. a trans man? I feel like we're just muddying the waters yeah. here at this point, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not going to try and, like, rank, like, is it better for a trans woman or a cis woman to play a trans man? The answer is no. <laughs> There was also a trans woman, Christine Clark, who was the, a trans consultant for the character of Missy. What? I don't know. All right, well. I tried to look up this woman to find out more about her. I am even saying she's a trans woman just on the assumption that she's trans because she was the trans consultant oh. for the character of Missy. But I wouldn't assume that. Okay, I mean, <laughs> I, maybe I gave them too much credit. But yeah, what Jake Graff was right there. Just give him an extra, like, however much money you get for being a trans consultant. No one's asked me for some reason. (laughs) Uh, And let him have something else to do on the many days you weren't letting him be in the movie. Yeah, but certainly it seems from all of what you two have just said Mm -hmm. that the director did not necessarily, the director and the people behind this film did not necessarily see a difference between trans men and trans women in regards to their capacity to play this role yes and also just sort of generally particularly if they had a trans woman as their trans consultant for a trans male role yes but i think also like i might as well state that different interviews i read seem to say either that 
the director asked Rebecca to read for the role or that Rebecca asked to read for the role herself and the director was like I mean that, that doesn't really make sense but sure go ahead mm. okay. so mm. I don't know yeah yeah yeah. It's annoying that it's it's really difficult to find out the nitty gritty of what goes on behind the scenes with making movies. Also, I would really like if we could start having trans actors in roles who like don't kind of like quote unquote look cis. You know what I mean? Like Jake Graff is a beautiful man, and I hope he has a successful career ahead of him. But like, it's just really depressing that like even to get that bit tiny part, you have to be a very like quote unquote like passing trans man mm. who has this very conventional masculine appearance like there was basically a- with Denise Goff they got a woman mm-hmm. you know and they cut her hair and they put her on like a masculine outfit and so forth and it's like if that's the look you want like you want a person who is assigned female at birth who hasn't been on testosterone and who could plausibly be read as a woman by the room there are trans women that look like that yeah, yeah. you know yeah. And, and like some of them can act and there aren't a lot of trans men in the public sphere at all but of those who do like you don't get many who look ambiguous in their presentation yeah like that's just like not ever seen and i think that that's something that's really really unhealthy for younger trans men yeah no i think that's a really good point i think it's really well made i think and i was reading an interview with the director about this and the director was saying you know yeah there are trans actors in this film and if you ask which ones then i'm like exactly that's the point you can't even tell the line there is basically see these trans people are fine and harmless they pass is what's implied in that yeah i mean maybe not necessarily their intention but yeah certainly seems implied by that statement oh also (laughs) apparently (laughs) yeah so do you remember the danish girl Yes. Mm-hmm. A little film called The Danish Girl. A little film called The Danish Girl. <laughs> Jake Graff and Rebecca Root also had bit parts of cis characters in that. What? So is this just a gimmick? That I think it's a gimmick, I guess. Is this just what directors do now? I mean, I guess it's a way of, you know, diverting criticism of mm. casting cis actors in trans roles by being like, well, we cast trans actors in cis roles and not comparing the fact yes. that the, the relative size of those roles and also the distinction between those two acts Mm. um, Mm. in terms of what they represent to those respective communities. Mm. So... I don't know if trans people playing cis characters is my, like, ideal goal of where trans actors should be going. Like, I'm not against it, Mm. but I guess it's just kind of like... I don't know, when, like, Samuel Jackson got classed cast as Nick Fury we weren't like oh like a black actor can play this character but it's still white now we were just like I guess Nick Fury's black now and that's just kind of how it is mm. Mm. and it's oh, like yeah. well if we were going to cast a trans man as like the next Captain America mm. is, it, is it more meaningful to be like oh like fictional trans Chris Evans is playing a cis character that's really empowering or is it better to just kind of quietly or not I don't know mm. just be like that character's trans like, now you know, sure, Captain America's trans, a trans man now. Yeah, like, we're talking about this man and this woman as trans people playing cis roles. Which I guess just means, like, their characters weren't about being trans and they, like, quote-unquote, like, don't look trans. Yeah, but, like, maybe they were trans roles. Like, there's there's nothing in those roles, for one thing, but... Yeah. yeah. There's nothing that... (laughs) 
necessitates them being cis or yes. trans. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's nothing that makes them cis roles, except that they're not part of a trans story about those people being trans. We're doing so many, like, air quotes that the audience can't see. <laughs> Just, like, mentally insert them. You'll probably pick the right places. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, right, overall, quite a good movie, but, like, yep. the more I thought about that, the more I was like, hang on a goddamn minute, uh, as opposed to when I first saw it, I was obviously very fine with the cis actor playing trans character. <laughs> uh, so that's all I have to say about Colette, I think we'll say, for the sake of everyone going home one day. <laughs> Shall we talk about Bohemian Rhapsody? Yes. The content warnings for this discussion are as follows. Drug use, the AIDS crisis, biphobia, and sex. The story of Bohemian Rhapsody follows Ferry Mercury, beginning with him working at Heathrow Airport and ending with the performance of the Live Aid concert. So the film was originally slated to star Sasha Baron Cohen, but after differences with the surviving members of Queen, he left and was replaced by Rami Malek. And in a similar sort of story, the original director and the director for like three quarters of the film was Brian Singer, but then he left because of creative differences and was replaced by Dexter Fletcher. Yeah, and as with a lot of Hollywood productions, the name that is on the film may not represent entirely the reality of the creation of that film. This is usually the case with writing more so than directing, but in this case, clearly, the director had a large role. Uh, On the other hand, in the case of the casting, obviously, Rami Malek plays Freddie Mercury for the entire film, so that at yeah. least we can be certain of. Wouldn't that be crazy? Until, <laughs> <laughs> like, just before Live Aid, it's Sasha Baron Cohen, because they shoot films in chronological order, obviously. Yeah. And then, just for, like, Live Aid, it's just Rami Malek, and everyone's just like, yeah. I'm yeah. like, is this an alien movie now? <laughs> so in terms of our overall thoughts about this film, I think we all overall seem to enjoy it, from what I hear. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I really enjoyed this film. I thought, in my opinion, that the first three quarters of it were probably sitting in like sort of six to seven out of ten kind of range, and then that the last 20 to 30 minutes really elevated <laughs> the seedings. You mean um, the shot-for-shot recreation of Live Aid? I do not just mean the shot-for-shot recreation of Live Aid. They're also just, I think, that the scenes leading up to that um, with Freddie's family and with his relationship with uh, Jim Hutton, which we'll get into a little bit. I thought those scenes definitely tied together a lot of what had happened previously, and maybe not in the best possible way, but I thought that they tied those the earlier scenes together in a way that improved the film in my estimation. They sure did tie them together at the expense of any semblance of, like, reflecting reality. This is my second comment, which even having not listened to our episode of Queer as Fact on Freddie Mercury, (laughs) it is very apparent, and this also was very apparent in reviews that I read of the Mm. film, that the sense of historical accuracy was not a particularly major concern. Specifically in that regard, the influence of the surviving band members upon the film is very obvious. Just, like, in a fairly light-hearted way, as one example, simply in the presentation of the other three members of Queen as being these fairly straight-laced family men who weren't that interested in partying and drugs. I don't find that a light-hearted example at all. No, I have a lot to say about that example. I mean, obviously obviously the implications of that there's a lot to say about, but it just... 
was very funny to me these scenes where yeah there's one queen like queen is famous for their big parties and i think there's one big party scene and freddie's like yeah let's let's go and the other three members are kind of like ah gotta get gonna head off yeah and it was just so patently obvious to me i'll pull the other one brian yeah (laughs) yeah i I was i was trying to remember brian may's name for a second (laughs) and yeah particularly from the perspective of brian may and i think specifically uh one of the reviews i read was basically saying that the party as depicted in that film was Brian May's idea. Mm. So I think that we accidentally careened, like, almost right into talking about issues we have with this film. (laughs) Uh, So I'd like to chill things right down and just say that I thought the use of colour was very good. (laughs) (laughs) I just found it a very, like, lively film to watch compared to Colette and Vita and Virginia, which Mm -hmm. were very like, this is a period piece. And I was like, oh, this feels so alive. (laughs) And I liked that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, that's all. <laughs> I thought Rami Malek was also an amazing Freddie Mercury. I almost wasn't even going to bother saying that <laughs> just because I was like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's obvious. Yes. He is. After I saw the film, I because as I mentioned, the final, however long of the film, is just shot for shot live aid. And so I went home and I looked up on YouTube to see and I watched it and I thought, but well, that's just the film I watched. Like, the original live aid video is exactly what Rami Malek did. Like, yeah. Yeah, and I think... Furthermore, like throughout the film, I think Rami mm. does an amazing job of portraying a person who feels like a real person rather than a caricature or rather than this kind of outsized image we have of Freddie Mercury. And I, I would say that even though I've just kind of bagged out um, the sort of toning down of the rest of the members of Queen, <laughs> I did think the moments where their personalities got to shine through um, in the script, I thought the actors did do a really good job of mm. making them seem like real people. Yeah, I saw a lot of comments where people were like, apart from Freddie Mercury, no one in this movie like is really like doing that much. I was like, what are you talking about? This movie was great. Like, Yeah, I think all the actors were great. All, yeah. all, everything, what are you talking about? Yeah, like, I think... Even I th- the like, um, record executives and stuff were fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that criticism is particularly harsh for Lucy Boynton, who plays Mary, uh, Freddie's fiance, for a large portion of the film. And in that I thought her performance was really good and I thought that her Mm -hmm. scenes with Freddie had good chemistry and were among the more interesting parts of the film. Yeah. Like, let's just quickly talk about how fun all of the, like, 55 concert scenes were. (laughs) (laughs) Because they were so good. I've been to live gigs that were less, like, energising and had, like, less good crowd feels than this movie did. Like, there was one point, I don't remember what gig it was, but it wasn't even the Live Aid gig, where, like, it cut away, and I realised that I was, like, sitting forward in my chair, like, with my muscles tense, and I was like, oh, man, this movie, that's a trip. <laughs> so I really liked it. I would watch a montage of just all of those mm. cut together, play some of it on Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing I would watch a montage of would just be all of the scenes where they're creating songs. Yeah, yeah that was so much yeah. fun. That's another thing I saw people be like, oh, they crammed all that in there because Queen wanted them to, I guess, but it's not any good. And I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. like, certainly it was fan service, but I mean... The whole film was fan service. The whole film was fan service. I thought it was amazing fan service. I thought it was incredibly fun. Mm, yeah. Was. Aesthetically, it was basically like the kind of you know, sort of heist movie scenes where you're, like, planning out things and everyone's (laughs) demonstrating their specific skills and what they bring to the table, and that was basically what we got, except it was the creation of, like, one of the greatest discographies 
that a band has ever made. Yes. Yeah. Maybe my favorite one of these, for some reason, was when they were bickering and then John Deacon just starts playing the bass riff for another one, Bites the Dust. Yeah. I was like, oh, yes. That's not in my top five favorite Queen songs. And I don't know why, but that scene just got to me. And that was quite late in the movie. Like, we yeah. had a bunch yeah. of that type of scene, and I was not sick of it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I absolutely agree in regards to that specific scene being really good. And the fact that, yeah, it's not one of my favorite Queen songs. But yeah, I had the mm. exact same reaction. It was very, very good. Do we have any other sort of lighthearted praise of this film before we move on? Okay, <laughs> Eli is very excited to talk about this movie. I mean, I think we're all quite excited to talk about this movie, especially after talking about the previous two movies, which, like, you know, Just think kind about of how varied from felt. bad to okay. Just think about how you felt in Vietnam, Virginia for a minute. Is that not, <laughs> like, that is not the energy in the room anymore. So... I'd heard a lot about this Live Aid performance, and when I was researching for the Freddie Mercury episode of the podcast, I played the Live Aid episode, like, 20 times. (laughs) I just kept watching it. I was like, I should watch it once for research, and then I just kept putting it on when I was meant to be doing other stuff. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, like, I'm sure this will be cool, but I don't know if I'm going to, like, get anything out of it that I haven't already got from, like, watching essentially this, except with, like, actual Freddie Mercury Um, But I thought they did a pretty good job of kind of, like, making it very faithful, but also using the fact that they were, like, a movie as opposed to actually filming a concert in the 80s um, Mm. to effect where they had, like, this really cool shot when it started of them diving down into Wembley, like, this big swooping shot from the sky down into the crowd. And also, like, just they had other moments with the camera kind of, like, going into the crowd while it was on that I thought really built up the energy. Yeah. And obviously, like, you can't get that shot in real Live Aid 1985. Uh, so I thought that was a really cool way of keeping it faithful, but, like, still managing to do some more interesting stuff. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now that we've been excited about Queen a bunch. Yes. Now let's shred this movie a little bit. <laughs> Just a little, a little bit. bit. Oh, I might do it on you. I got a few things to say. <laughs> yeah. So I really don't know how to start talking about all of the things that I didn't like or was just kind of like hmm about because I feel like they all kind of feed into each other mm-hmm. uh, so god knows how this will go but let's talk about how Paul Brenter is like the super villain in this movie yeah <laughs> yeah so in this film Paul Brenter is presented as the sort of handler for the band initially um, before arranging in a manipulative and devious manner to have the uh, previous manager of Queen fired um, so that he can assume that role. He then endeavours to effectively break off the band um, from Freddy such that he can be uh, Freddy's entire social circle and is largely presented as the closest thing to a villain that the movie has. Uh, I guess you have, uh, I believe it's Mike Myers playing that like record executive yeah. who doesn't want, who is apparently fictional from what I've heard. Yeah, he's yeah. fictional. As the record executive who doesn't want Bohemian Rhapsody to be the single from the album and doesn't want it being played on the radio and all of this stuff, but that's effectively just one scene. Yes. Um, whereas Paul is presented as a consistent villain throughout the film. Mm-hmm. The end of Paul's arc in this film. Uh, where Freddy effectively abandons him in Berlin. Paul proceeds to give an interview where he outs Freddy and uh, implies that, you know, Freddy needed him and that Freddy has lost a lot from 
moving away from Paul even though obviously it's presented in the film as a very healthy decision for Freddy to return to his family his adopted family in the form of Queen in reality Paul Prenter did work with Queen from 1975 to 1986 you'll notice that that timeline is already different from the timeline in the movie the band felt like he influenced their sound a bit too much uh, and didn't like the direction he was taking it in and he was certainly much closer to Freddie than to the rest of the band. Uh, after he's fired, he sells a story about Freddie's personal life to The Sun, which is a trashy newspaper. So, like, there's some superficial similarities there. But the kind of, like, centering and exaggerating of him into this villain role is, like, not necessarily something that this man didn't deserve, but I'm more concerned with like why they decided this movie needed it and the implications of having it beat this person and specifically i think at this point it's worth mentioning because i didn't actually mention it previously that paul is gay mm. yes and paul is presented as being in a relationship of some sort with freddie yes uh, and, yeah. and yeah paul is presented as yeah having a very strong attraction to freddie yeah it's not necessarily clear that they ever have that that relationship is ever reciprocated on Freddy's part. I wouldn't say in the film, even in the scenes where they are in Berlin together, partying a lot. Mm-hmm. It still seems as if Paul has more taken on a role of kind of sort of controlling Freddy's life rather than and sort of managing Freddy's life as opposed to being his partner. Yeah, I don't think it's clear either way. Yeah, certainly you could read into it that they are sleeping together in that portion of the film, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you, but... It's not made explicit. It's not made explicit. Mm. Mm. So I I guess my problem with this is that I feel that there's some unfortunate implications to having, like, the bulk of the real gay content in this film happen after you have this villain figure like seducing him away from the band off to like gay club land in Europe right and so then you get these like heady montages of like beefcake men and then at some point Freddy's like yeah I need to leave this I'm leaving Paul I'm going away from this now and I think that the unfortunate implications of that have could have been avoided if like really anything had been made of Jim Hutton who is Freddie's long-term partner uh, for the last six or seven years of his life and he mm. was like really barely in this film which feeds into the other issue of when they decided to end this film so this is what I mean about all of the things linking up together in a way that's really difficult to disentangle. I think the thing with Jim Hutton is my first thing I was going to say when you said how little Jim Hutton is in the film was well the film ends with Live Aid and it wasn't long before Live Aid that he got in a relationship with Jim Hutton or whatever but then I thought they changed so much of the timeline they changed when his AIDS diagnosis was they changed the whole storyline with Paul they changed all kinds of things why couldn't they have given Jim Hutton a bigger role and had them get in a relationship a few years before and given us some more positive gay content and I guess the reason for that is because they want this kind of story where freddy breaks up the band goes off with the villain of the movie and Mm -hmm. it's only directly before lab eight that he comes back begs for forgiveness and the band has to like get themselves in playing shape within three days or whatever and having him be in a stable long-term relationship 
before that just doesn't work with that narrative. Mm. It's also worth noting that Freddie never broke up the band. No, he didn't. Yeah, we That's should just probably fake. make it clear at that point. He did go and record a solo album, but he was not the first member of Queen to do so. Two others had. Uh, this wasn't particularly seen as her like betrayal or anything by anyone. Uh, they did have, I think, more than one time where they were like, let's just like not tour or record or anything for a year because touring and then recording is exhausting. Uh, and again, that wasn't like a particularly contentious thing that was them breaking up or anything like that. So they, yeah, also decided to insert this narrative of him like causing Queen to break up and not play together for years at a time while he went off to Berlin to, I don't know, Party. make bad music and have sex with men whilst on drugs or whatever. <laughs> Which, again, like, it's... The first, when I was first thinking about this, I was like, it's like they made Freddy the villain. And then I was like, no, Paul's the villain. Mm. He's just kind of like, I guess he's there to make Freddy not ultimately responsible for being the villain. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think, and this is, gets into a bit of what I was saying earlier about how I thought that the last 30 minutes of the film did improve on some of the flaws of the preceding hour and a half. Mm-hmm. In that, yeah, I was very much in the scenes in Berlin being like, really? You're going to present the main... I was about to say thrust. <laughs> say it. The main thrust of the queer content in this film as being the period in which Freddie is making bad decisions and doing wrong by his friends and all of that, I did think that that does get somewhat ameliorated by the fact that immediately upon coming back, not only does he reunite with the band, but he goes and searches out and finds Jim Hutton and the fact that he then takes him to his family. And yes, obviously... Um, given the significant nature of uh, Jim's relationship with Freddie in the real world and the fact that, yeah, obviously we're messing around with the timelines, I do agree that they could have spent more time on that relationship and developing that relationship. But I do think that maybe um, from what has been said so far, that maybe understates the importance of those couple of scenes that we do get coming as they do at the sort of crescendo of the film Mm. and and the fact especially that they take time to have these two quite slow paced deliberate scenes with Jim Hutton and then with Jim Hutton and Freddie's family Mm. immediately before the kind of big live aid concert. On the other hand though they spent a long time as we discussed with Paul that was the main conflict of the film really and to me, those scenes with Jim Hutton felt so rushed. Like, I barely saw them have a conversation before Freddie was introducing Jim Hutton to his family as his partner. And we'd seen, for example, his relationship with Mary. We see some, like, quite nice domestic scenes with them in the house together. And we see him spending a lot of time with Paul partying. And then we didn't really see what was in him and Jim's relationship. I think also it kind of creates this dichotomy or whatever you want to call it of, like, Freddie was being gay in a bad way and then he comes back and he's being gay in a good way. And the mm. being gay the being gay in a bad way that he needs to like, you know, turn his life around from is him just like having a lot of casual sex. And then the being gay in a good way is him having this like, you know, steady relationship with his friend who he can introduce to his parents. Like in reality, after he gets together with Jim Hutton, he keeps having casual sex on the 
gay party scene um he was very unapologetic about that in like some quotes we have to him that he was just very promiscuous and that's what he wanted to do and also in reality he met jim hutton in a gay club and had casual sex with him a bunch yeah yeah and like he was going to gay clubs and having casual sex with men for ages while he was just being a member of queen and it didn't involve any kind of schism in the band or anything like that like yeah absolutely and this is where i think that um the distinction that i was trying to draw out there and i think you two have articulated it quite well is that i did think it was positive that they didn't wholeheartedly present his queer identity being tied in with the portions of the film where he's acting in a way that the movie considers to be bad, mm. right? Mm. But yeah. I do agree with largely what you just said, which is that that idea of there being a good way to be queer and a bad way to be queer, and that was where I felt that the movie did fall down mm-hmm. um, in terms of its queer representation. I Yeah, I think that there's a version of this film where they don't really include Jim Hutton at the end at all that's mm. much, much worse and is where I mm. thought the movie was going when we were with Paul in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that we then did go back to Jim Hutton at the end, maybe I'm being too forgiving of that, but I did the fact that I could see this terrible movie unfolding <laughs> before me and then it took a left turn away from that. Yeah, no, um, like, it just at the end, he just gets married to Mary and, like, throws off the rainbow flag and that's it. <laughs> okay, that's an even worse movie, but, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I did think that that was good, but, yes, obviously it comes with the caveat that presenting the idea that there's a good way to be queer and a bad way to be queer and creating a dichotomy that didn't really exist in Freddy's real life um, mm-hmm. was... Yeah, moralizing and very problematic, especially given the then context of what I assume we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about next, um, which is that association between casual sex and the party scene and drugs and all of that with the AIDS crisis. Or we could do what the film did and be like, we've referenced AIDS a bunch. We can just end this podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) In the film, we don't really get a lot of information or a lot of detail of Freddie's AIDS diagnosis and subsequent experience with the disease. Mm -hmm. How did we feel about that in that I think there's been a fair bit of discourse about that being a positive the fact that the film didn't necessarily focus too much on freddie as someone with aids and that's certainly the message that the film is going for mm. in terms of there's mm. an explicit mm. conversation where freddie i'm not gonna be that. their poster boy or whatever yeah. yeah yeah versus the idea that you're kind of minimizing the impact of this crisis i definitely had the experience that you had with the um Paul scenario where you thought you were going to be watching a much worse film where there were a bunch of times when like Freddie Mercury is coughing and then you see that he's coughing blood and you know he's obviously realising he's sick and I was terrified that I was watching a much worse film where they just kept hinting at it and at least they did talk about AIDS Mm. yeah I was primed to think that they were going to deal with it a lot less than they did given the reaction whatever they did I was gonna hate it so I don't really hate it (laughs) (laughs) thanks I hate it yeah thanks I hate it we've discussed before on this podcast that we're just at this time where we don't know how to deal with AIDS in our media you know and like as you've alluded to there 
like did anyone really want a movie where the last half hour was Freddie Mercury getting increasingly terribly sick and then dying Hmm. and apparently the original plan for the film back when they came up with it was that Freddie Mercury would die about halfway through and it would continue to kind of show the journey of Queen after that yeah and I can't remember who it was that had this original idea but they basically told nobody wants to watch that movie nobody wants to watch the protagonist die of AIDS and it's true I mean especially halfway through the film and I mean that may have been um, that would have been a very different film that would have been a film about Queen whereas this movie is very much a film about Freddie Mercury Mm. Mm. yeah it is Mm. when Freddie passed away I think it was John Deacon who was just sort of like well that's it like how can Queen exist anymore so I did feel that like cutting it all off before they had to deal more with his having AIDS was a bit of a cop-out and I didn't feel comfortable with it but at the same time I don't want the movie where it's this movie but there's an extra half hour on the end where he has AIDS and that's the movie and I think it's also made more difficult by the fact that Freddie's interior life is really really difficult to get a handle on deliberately because he was such a private person Uh, and this especially went for his feelings about AIDS and you know he kept this from the band for a long time they certainly did not know when they did that live aid concert Freddie did not know when they had the live aid concert and maybe didn't even have AIDS for that matter but like they didn't know for several years after that and I think it's a thing where like Freddie's reaction I have seen it reacted to like him as a real life man gay activists saying like he was a kind of essentially a bad queer person because he never came out and he didn't do any like work for the community and so forth like I feel like putting him on screen is just a difficult thing to do and make people happy so Mm. I'm kind of sympathetic to what this film is trying to do but like at the same time I was quite like towards the end of that movie yeah Mm. and I mean this gets into some of the difficulties with biopics of Mm. real world people um, particularly marginalised real world people I find in that often their lives are not neat and mm. their actions are not unambiguously good in regards to their own communities yeah. and they have complicated inner lives and complicated thoughts and obviously this movie is, is seeking to simplify a very complex life down into a two-hour film that also includes a bunch of scenes where people make songs and it's kind of fun. Mm. And, yeah, I think that it was kind of a situation where the right balance of putting in a certain amount of information and context about AIDS was going to be very, very hard to find. I do think that it the presence of AIDS comes in very abruptly in that I, th- I believe it's during the Berlin scenes when we first sort of start Mm. realising that, oh, okay, the movie's going to talk about AIDS now. Yeah, yeah. It's quite late in the film. where I think it's through a news broadcast that we hear. Yeah, I believe it is a news broadcast that um, is sort of playing in the background of a scene. Mm -hmm. And I did find it, yeah, quite abrupt in that suddenly every scene just kind of had a reference to AIDS. 
mm. yeah. for a while. Um, whereas, you know, maybe if there'd been a couple of references scattered in earlier and they'd sort of made that a bit more gradual, I might have been a little bit happier with that. But I guess it's mm. a thing, though, where, like, how much earlier can you make it before you're making the decision of shifting the AIDS epidemic forward a few years? That's true. That's true. True, especially given what you just said about how when the Live Aid concert happened. Freddie had not revealed that he had AIDS and potentially didn't even have it. So After the Live Aid concert, like not directly after, but sometime after, he took a test that was negative. He wasn't diagnosed until two years later. Yeah. You mm. know? And I think that that was kind of the part that bothered me. It was not so much the amount of AIDS in the movie, but the fact that they were like, how can we use this to serve the narrative we've made yeah. up for this character that we're basing on Freddie Mercury. Mm-hmm. It was basically how can we use the fact that he's dying of AIDS to give this live aid performance more emotional impact is how I felt about it. And, I mean, you could apply a similar criticism to what we were talking about before with his relationship with Jim Hutton, where the kind of neat and tidy narrative that they have of him going into a relationship, a healthy mm presumably monogamous relationship as it's presented in the film yeah which it wasn't with jim is also in service of building up to that finale with Mm. the live aid concert that we've already said is you know one of the best parts of the film but also the fact that so much of the film is in service of building up to it does sometimes do a disservice to its efforts to be representative of the aids crisis and to be representative of queer identities Mm. so i guess as a piece of dramatic filmmaking, they succeed. As a piece of good representation, less so. And I think as well, part of the reason that they can't really represent the AIDS crisis very effectively is because they never represented Freddie as having a queer community. Mm. You know, he's got Paul in this kind of party scene who's represented as being bad and who he kind of breaks off from not long after the AIDS crisis first introduced. And we've got these montages of him in clubs, but he's never got any kind of queer friends. We never see any other relationships that he had that might have been positive. And so there's kind of nothing except outside news broadcasts to make us feel like the AIDS crisis is there. It's just facts that are being thrown at us rather than seeing anything happen. Yeah, and I do think that that was presented in a reasonably interesting manner towards the start of the film where when Freddie is first coming to terms with his sexuality in the film we do sort of get the sense that he doesn't have a community and therefore is much more uncertain about that Mm. as a result and I thought those scenes were actually done quite well but then yeah the fact that we then don't see him engaging with a queer community Mm. as you said kind of makes that lose a lot a bit of its impact Mm. Mm. and I guess it is worth interjecting here that he had had long-term male lovers before Jim Hutton and he was involved in a scene and as with many men who had sex with men at that time his growing awareness of AIDS was kind of part and parcel of becoming aware of members of his community who were disappearing from public view including his own lovers or ex-lovers which is a very different picture than the one we get in the film. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of Freddy's long-term relationships, obviously one of the more important relationships he has in the film is with 
um, Mary. Yes. Again, I don't necessarily know <laughs> the history at play here, but I found if I was just coming to this film as I was without the historical context, but with the understanding that Freddy is bisexual, that watching the film, I thought that there were moments and there were hints of his bisexuality after his coming out scene to Mary, and I I did find it really interesting that you know he comes out and says i think i'm bisexual and then mary's response is i think you're gay Mm. um but i didn't think the film really went anywhere with that and i just want to know like just very briefly what freddie's experience with bisexuality was like from our understanding so as we covered in our episode on freddie mercury it's pretty difficult to summarize in a quick or neat way how freddie's sexuality was and what label he would have applied to himself, which is a like somewhat separate question, although obviously connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that because of that difficulty and because he lived in a time that had a lot of bisexual erasure, and we live in a time that has a lot of bisexual erasure, and because he was very private and so forth, like it's difficult to get at that interior life. And so the film's kind of left with, what do I do with this? I feel like him having that like very strong relationship with Mary that stops being romantic and or sexual but remains important and then he kind of moves on to being in relationships with men and his and like no further relationships with women are shown is a fairly accurate one to okay. my understanding mm-hmm. yep uh so just in terms of his experiences apart from like pre-mentioned problems i had with like what was done with jim hutton and so forth like fine so i guess the problem that remains is really what we do with the label which is obviously a question that carries a lot of weight especially in media dealing with bisexuality in particular given how you know no one ever says the word Mm-hmm. So it's worth noting that that exchange of Mary, I think I'm bisexual, no, Freddie, you're gay, or whatever the real direct quote is, happened in real life. This wasn't dialogue written for the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary recalls this as the conversation that went down. And we don't know, or at least I haven't found an account where she tells us what he says to her in reply to that. And so I think for me, the film's kind of choice of having those two lines be said, and then, like, he doesn't say anything for a while in the scene, you know, of having him just kind of fall silent is, like, not a great representation of bisexuality, but a sort of, like, almost not deliberately good representation of how difficult it is to put Freddie Mercury's sexuality on screen. You know, we have these two lines, and then what do we say about it? What does he say about it? We just don't know. And so the character falls silent. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think it was an interesting choice to include that conversation, because, like, obviously, like, we know that that conversation happened in real life and that that's what Freddie said and that's what Mary said. So, like, there was reasoning behind including that. But if you don't know that, as you didn't know that, if you're watching that film and thinking, you know, what is this film saying about Freddie's sexuality... It can just look like this film is saying Freddie thought he was bi, but then he was wrong. And, like, I have had more than one bi friend be really angry about that line and be like, why the hell would they put that in that movie? What were they thinking? Because they don't know that there's a historical basis Mm. and they only see somebody saying, I'm bi, and somebody saying, no, you're not, which is, you know, an experience bi people have to go through all the time. And I think it gets back to that question of, like, how do you make the decision of what to include that is faithful to reality and when to like 
bend the narrative because the truth doesn't work on screen. Mm. And this is maybe an example of them doing the opposite problem of before where they chose to be faithful to the truth instead of making stuff up and it had effects that maybe it shouldn't have. I don't know. I mean, obviously it is being faithful to the truth in that Mary does recall having this conversation with Freddie and I'm not going to accuse Mary of lying, but we don't know what Freddie said next and Mm. I don't know if it is being faithful to the truth if we only have two lines from a conversation. Mm. That is a really good point. I haven't read anything where Mary recounts the dialogue that happened next, but she says that Freddie pretty quickly just agreed that I was right. Okay. Uh, and I, I guess, again, getting into that, I don't want to rehash our entire conversation from the other episode. I don't mean to kind of, like, exclude you from that. No, 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 that's totally it would be fine. Like, you know, interesting. Um, but, like, basically, suffice it to say is, like, that isn't me saying that, like, so, like, gavel, 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 Freddie was gay, let's move on. It's complicated. And yeah. The film mm. doesn't really present it as complicated because it doesn't really keep engaging with, like, bisexual mm. question mark at all. Yeah, I would say it presents it as reasonably complicated in that one scene and then never engages with it ever again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which kind of by implication is a gavel, 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 Freddy is gay mm, moment. Gavel, gavel, gavel. But I, I wouldn't say it necessarily calms down hard on either end of that. So I think that's about uh, all we have to say about Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. all. Just those few comments. <laughs> <laughs> which brings us to the end. We have talked about three films tonight. Maybe too many. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's too many films. Let's never do that again. <laughs> One positive thing about all three of these films is that I feel that all three end on a relatively triumphant note for their queer characters, which, given something, this is something we've spoken about with queer film in general, and also just queer people's lives and talking about them throughout this podcast, that sense of a relative happy ending has been somewhat rare uh, in historical queer media, and I think that the fact that we've picked three films not necessarily deliberately aiming to get three films that had positive endings mm, again we're australians we just took any tickets we could get to a queer historical <laughs> film um maybe represents a shift in the way that queer identities are being represented on screen hmm. so that brings us to the end of our retrospective on queer films with historical themes that were released in 2018 We hope that you've enjoyed uh, this episode, and if you have, please feel free to contact us and leave comments because we'd really like to hear if you did enjoy this episode because we could very easily do one again uh, at the end of next year. With that, we've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. If somehow you haven't had enough of Queer as Fact at the end of this episode, you can find us on Facebook tumblr and twitter as queer as fact you can also contact us directly with queer history movie recommendations or anything else you'd like to tell us at queerasfact at gmail.com you can find the rest of our episodes on podbean or itunes or whatever podcatcher you're listening to us on right now if you listen to us on itunes we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review and a rating out of five stars it really helps us find new listeners uh, uh, if you don't want to do that, we'd also appreciate it if you just sort of like lean over to the person next to you on the bus or on the street and be like, hey, queer is fact. Check it out. 
out and then just keep going. We'll be back on the 15th of January when Alice and I will be doing something a little different and co-hosting an episode on Julius Caesar and Nero. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then.